good. You're listening to Wasted Radio. My name is Matt, and today I have Joe Hardcore of Philadelphia, the promoter for This Is Hardcore Fest, the mammoth fest that goes on here in Pennsylvania once a year. It hasn't been around in a minute thanks to COVID, but it's coming back this year strong. July 7th through 10th in Philadelphia at Franklin Music Hall. Used to be the Electric Factory. You're going to want to check that out. If you never have, it will change your life. Joe is, man, I mean, he's been in, uh, uh, he sang for Punishment. He's uh, still in Shattered Realm, Fast Break Records. Uh, This is Hardcore Podcast, Rule of Three Podcast. The point I'm kind of trying to make here is that Joe Hardcore is involved in hardcore in just about every aspect that you can imagine. He's very involved in the scene. He's extremely passionate, probably the most passionate person, if not, yeah, yeah, probably the most passionate person that I've ever met. Um, about hardcore and it's great to connect with somebody like that somebody so knowledgeable about PA hardcore history and not only that but the history of his own city the music scene the concerts and whatnot I'm getting a little ahead of myself here you want to listen to this episode because uh, Joe tells a lot of stories he's a really knowledgeable guy and this is exactly what I wanted to do with this show I wanted to jump into the history to give uh, younger people something to listen to to understand kind of you know where this all came from what it's about and everything like that because you know you need to know where you came from to take pride in what you're doing and I believe that and Joe believes that and again it was a pleasure to have you on Joe thank you so much I'll definitely see you around Uh, before we hop into this Um, I have one song that I want to play, and it's a punishment song. This is one of my favorites. Uh, This song's called Burning Souls. So check it out. Um, My interview with Joe Hardcore and Punishment with Burning Souls.
right. You're here with Matt. I'm here with Joe Hardcore. What's up, Joe? Hey, Matt. Thank you for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, this is this is really exciting for me because I've been watching you for a long time, like in the bands that you were in, the shows you set up, how much you contribute. Um, you're a really influential person. And, you know, it means the world to me uh, for you to be a part of the show. So, you know, thank you very much for coming on. Um, and I kind of just wanted to, you know, start talking a little bit about um, what this is hardcore, you know, was, is where it started and bringing it up to the present to, you know, this kind of dramatic comeback that this is hardcore is about to have. Um, and I guess really where to start there was, you know, for anybody who wouldn't know or whatever you do set up, this is hardcore. Um, when was the first one uh, that you did? First one took place August, 2006, August, 2006. And where was that at? That was at a place called the starlight ballroom, which is like two blocks away from where we're doing it now. Okay. And now we're doing it at, um, electric. They call it, yeah, they call it the Franklin music hall. But it was, oh, it's still known as the Electric Factory. Under complete new management? I mean, you're working, are you no, still with not some at all. of the same so, people? So, this is a not, a not a sidebar, but sure. In the, last, in the last 10 to 15 years, the, actually more like, even more, um, started with Live Nation trying to put their feet deeper into um, independent music as well as just music in general. And when they were still under their parent company, Clear Channel, they would regularly call the fire department and complain about R5 production shows um, at the First Unitarian Church and say that they're violating the fire code. Yeah, These are the kind of things that corporate entities do when they're trying to steal a bigger piece of the pie. Now, I'm a hardcore kid, so I, I seldom use the term market. But yeah. in, this, in this case, Philadelphia is a large rock and roll music in general market. Mm -hmm. So Live Nation came in and they wanted a bigger piece of the market. And at the time, Brian Dilworth, who was an independent promoter, began working with Live Nation and also still booking his own shows at the privately owned Electric Factory, which has its roots in the 1970s. Um, the venue itself is named after the concert company, Electric Factory Concerts, which goes all the way back to the uh, late fifties, early sixties. That's cool. So this is a lot of history in hardcore uh, in, in, in Philadelphia and later would be the big thing for this is hardcore. Um, specifically the owner who um, started the electric factory concerts. He is like a legend in rock and roll. Yeah. And he, um, anyone who is familiar with the band fear, which is a LA, LA punk band, mm -hmm. but, um, you might have seen the guy if you've seen the movie Clue. He was Mr. Body, that whole thing. Um, <laughs> this guy, he was in Tim this Curry. band. Yeah, yeah, he was Mr. Body, the leaving the yeah. singer of well, he was also from Philadelphia. Okay. And so in general, what what happened is this person started doing shows as the electric factory concerts way back. And it uh, started with uh, Jerry and Herbert Spivak. And those guys, um, later on, more guys came on. And this is like a, um, 
this is a thing that Larry Magnet would be a big part of. Okay. It would start with um, it would start with the the Spivak brothers, but they would eventually include Larry Magnet. Larry Magnet at one point, this is what this is a funny trivia. Larry Magnet would go ahead and tell a young Steven Starr, who is a very famous restaurateur in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. that he no longer wants him to book concerts because he booked the Guns N' Roses concert and gave him enough money and pushed him out of the business. And this launched Steven Starr, who is like literally one of the most favorite restaurateurs from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. Yeah. So Larry Magnet has been doing shows literally since the 60s. At some point in the late 70s or mid 70s, I think he opened the first electric factory. And the, the bill, the hand bills are amazing. Like Jimi Hendrix, like you name it, you can Google it. It's a fantastic. Mm-hmm. That venue would eventually close. In the mid to late 90s, they reopened Electric Factory. And I, I was there for a lot of the first concerts. It's absolutely a credible place. And it was like the biggest room until you get to like small stadium sizes mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. Okay. Now, why all this is important is um, at a certain point in time, Larry wanted to go private again and like stop having Live Nation do shows in their venue. Because of this, Live Nation first bought the TLA, which is called the Theater of Living Arts, and they rebranded it the Fillmore at TLA because the Fillmore is a famous rock concert and they mm-hmm. bought that. They bought the naming rights. Okay. And like it's to me, it's always been disingenuous to take something that's not from a part of the city that it's in and name it that. So here, we don't need a Fillmore in fucking Philadelphia South Street. We have the TLA. It's been there forever. Yeah. yeah. And then so when they they lost a lawsuit about being able to book at the Electric Factory concerts, they kept the dot com. So Electric Factory had to use electricfactory.info. And then they built the new venue called the Fillmore in Philadelphia. So this is the kind of capitalist money that these motherfuckers have yeah. where they can just go ahead and build a 3,000 person room. Yeah. To, to compete against the electric factory concerts. So at a certain point in time, Larry's probably in his seventies, if not almost eighties, Larry magnet and his um, partners were like, you know what? We don't really like, we can still do the concerts we want to do. They have an amazing foundation. I mean, he's like legitimately friends with Bruce Springsteen and all these stars because he helped their career when they were first all coming up. Yeah. Like he's got signed basketball from the 76ers. Like, He's just been a rock and roll legend. So this is all to answer your question, but give you history. So at a certain point in time, a company called AEG, which is like the competition to Live Nation, came in. They bought the room, but then they had to rename it Franklin Music Hall because the Electric Factory concerts are like, we're not giving you the name. You don't get the name. You can have the room, but you don't get the name. Sure. And so since we started working there was not until 10 years ago in 2012, the, the, the management itself has only gotten better. One of my really good friends who I worked with when I, um, I did a stint bar backing in the late two thousands and she was an amazing bar back or uh, bartender. And then she became a venue manager at union transfer. She now runs the electric factory. Well, Franklin music hall and even though it has corporate overlords from New York city, the venue is almost 99% the same staff. It's always been for the last 10 years. Okay. And it's why we always work with them because since the first time we put our foot in the door, we were welcomed. And um, a side note, the guy, Brian Dilworth, who I mentioned, who got us in the room, he passed away the week before the whole world knew about COVID. 
So going into, and I'm jumping ahead a little, going into my, this year's, this is hardcore. This is the first without my mentor and like the guy who showed me, here's the next level. It's a little weird, but yeah, yeah, so that's, that's the story of the electric factory. And that's, that's the the story. It's still the staff. It's still, they have corporate overlords, but I'm telling you, we run this motherfucker like a hall show. We rent it out. We have final say, and they are so supportive of us. And it's the only reason why we do the show at this venue, because from the first time we walked in, they gave us the car blanche and said, we don't want to change what you do. We want to support it and help you grow it. And that's what they have done. That's great. That's awesome, man. And anybody who's been to the electric factory, um, it is just like exactly what you said. Like you, you said you run it like a hall show. It has the feel of that, you know, it's, it's not claustrophobic. I mean, it's a big room and you can fit a lot of people in there, but you don't lose the, the sense and spirit of like family and friends that hardcore kind of brings to the table. And like in that large of an atmosphere, it's really cool. Um, especially when you start to see the stage packed and there's, you know, everybody singing along and everybody all up together. Um, I've seen some pretty amazing moments uh, at the Electro Factory myself, namely um, Nails is the one that sticks out uh, first and foremost. Um, but I wanted to ask you about some of the best moments uh, so far, you know, that you've had at the Electric Factory. Well, as you start working on something, and at least maybe me, I'm a little bit more emotional about something. So sure. Like my first real moment. I mean, I've been going, like I said, uh, electric factory, I think they opened late 97 or early 98. So when they first came back, they came back with a bang. I mean, they came back, they, they had the beastie boys when the intergalactic thing came out. Like this is a venue where they could easily play in front of 20,000. Mm. I mean, I've seen so many amazing concerts there. It, it, it was always like the big room, you know? And, mm. um, which comes with a lot of chaos and a lot of stories that really aren't worth delving into that are pretty fucking funny, but just in general, you know, like that was my late teens was growing to like the big room and having a lot of friends who work security and stuff. At some point, I even, I would just like walk in like, Mm -hmm. you know, we would get the hookup for which is good and bad. But when I first got to the point where we had to go to the electric factory, because you had asked when it started, Started in 2006 at the Starlight Ballroom. Now, we didn't, we got the room because of R5 Productions, but those who aren't unfamiliar, Sean Agnew is a guy born in Philadelphia in the suburbs. He is probably now with Brian Dilworth being passed away, America's single handed greatest independent booker. Really? The guy has talent out his fucking ass. And early on in the 2000s, um, I known him since the late nineties when he started and we were kind of a menace to his shows, but a couple of times we'd help him out with like kicking some people out when there's too many people. I mean, mm-hmm. back in the day, he would pack on a show with like hot water music and the promise ring in Philly. Yeah. And there'd be 900 people. And he'd be like, I need you to scare people away. Holy shit. Just get your friends and yell <laughs> at them, tell them, go home. He's like, cause I can't let them all in. So I'm like, get the yeah. fuck out of here. And we had a good, we had a good love hate relationship. Sean loved us, but hate it when we used to beat people up and gave them headaches. Yeah. But he never banned us from his shows. <laughs> right. And um, he would go on to open up um, the only like private, like like publicly or privately owned 
venue that I'm aware of at 440 on the college campus in Philadelphia for a little bit. He's done amazing things. Eventually he would take me on uh, first. I would help out with security at the place, starlight ballroom and some of the church shows. And then later on, he let me start doing shows at the first Unitarian church. Okay. In 2005, Hellfist from New Jersey fell apart. There were shows at the church, shows at the truck, and shows at Starlight Ballroom, including Life, Lifetime and 108's reunions. Mm-hmm. We're sitting out there. It's August 2006 in Philadelphia. It is hot as fucking balls. Yet, there's over a thousand something people on a line down the street in Philadelphia in a block that people never stand on in this venue I've almost never been in. Mm-hmm. And that was the genesis of this hardcore because I'm standing there going, this many people would come to see two or three bands. We could actually do a fest. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, going to our bigger conversation about Pennsylvania, you know, we've had some fests, but I've never felt like we were the center of something like, like anything at that time, you know, like mm-hmm. there was posi numbers beforehand, which I'll get into, but like to think that Philadelphia could have a fest was pretty much, eh, I don't think, you know, we were kind of like, I don't know if it'll work. But that's a genesis to why we started This Is Hardcore was the lack of positive numbers mm-hmm. and then that. And it was through Sean Ag- and I always, Whenever I talk about This Hardcore, there would be no This Hardcore if there wasn't a Sean Agnew mm-hmm. who had the venue and was like, I'll help you book the fest. And he basically, I showed him with the bands. I would explain the money. And he would be like, this is how you make this work. Okay. So without him, you know, at the time I was booking shows for about seven years. Actually, no, no, no. 2006 was nine years. Added, I didn't realize the little extras that would go in. So Sean Agnew and I booked, worked on This Is Hardcore from 2006 to 2011. The venue in the te- 2010 and 2011 years sold out so quick, I was getting like hate mail. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck you, this sucks. How come we can't come? <laughs> you need to make it somewhere bigger, which is a fucking you know, like hard problem to have, right, guys? Yeah, yeah. And so through Tim Bohr, who's another guy who came up in Philadelphia hardcore, he now is the guy who books things like he formerly booked Nancy. He built. He booked some of the first Misfits reunion shows. He also has always booked bands like Kill Switch Engage and Hatebreed. You know, there's a guy who came from just booking hardcore shows and hardcore bands to being like this powerhouse in American metal. And this is another mentor of mine from Philadelphia area. Tim linked me with Brian Dilworth. So like one of my favorite Electro Factory moments was telling Brian at his office. I'm not doing this shit if there's no fucking stage diving and this and that. And he's like, hold on. He's like, you know what? Let's just take a drive over there. Let's, I want you to see this. He's like, I know you've never really been on that stage. So he takes me up into the room and he takes me in and we like walk in and we stand on the stage. He's like, so like, do you want to jump off this? Like, would you be good with this? And I'm like, absolutely not at all. (laughs) (laughs) He totally fucked me out. And um, he said, but I'm going to get with our production manager, who's one of the greatest production managers, the maniac. And he's been with this article for 10 years, Jerry Market. And Jerry Market built a small standalone stage in front of their stage. And that's been why we've made them make that intimate connection with the fans still without the barricades and why it feels like a hardcore show. Yeah. Now they could have easily said, fuck you. You do the show with the barricade, but you don't do the show at all. Right. But instead they said, no, 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 no. I, you know, Brian, Brian, you know, another good thing is Brian was the known for get, paying Fugazi more money than any promoter ever before or after, uh-huh. you know, he believed in independent music as much as became uh, amazing uh, talent buyer and, and promoter. 
He knew how to take care of punk bands. That's what he came from. He used to tour manage punk rock bands and he just knew it. So he's like, you can't do it on this stage, but I'll, f- I'll figure it out. So you guys can have what you that's need. Dope. And that's like one of my <laughs> coolest, this is hardcore moments was like going in there. And you got to remember at the time I was, it's 10 years later. I mean, so it's, I was 30 turning 31 still real. Like I know what the fuck I'm doing. Not realizing how little I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And here is like in that same meeting when I'm sitting in his office, he's having a conversation with Jerry and he's like, I all hear him. His end is I don't care what they want. Get him a fucking tiger. If they want a tiger and he hangs up and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. What do you tell me? He's like, uh, guns and roses wants like an oxygen tank and all this stuff on the rider, but it doesn't matter because it comes out of their final payout. So if they want to spend $10,000 on stupid shit, it just means they take home less money. I don't care what the fuck they want. Is and that I was how like, that works with those big bands too. Um, to some degree. So what usually happens in some situations, every contract is a little different and every show is a little different and every rider, like obviously you're talking about a band that used to sell out 20,000 person rooms. Sure. So when they go down to a 3000 person room, some bands demand, aren't, they can't demand as much as they think they can. Well, they can, but the deal is it's called like an underplay. Okay. So like it was a door deal. Like, Hey, we'll give you X at this, but we're not, you know, like, when you're at twenty thousand dollars at like listeners is like a like an Iron Maiden, if they play any room in Philadelphia, their tickets are now like seventy five dollars. Right. Seventy five dollars at two thousand twenty thousand people, that's a couple million dollars. Yeah. And so like the GNR era, the Motley Crews, all them bands previous to the internet on the online pre-sales, mm-hmm. everything was cash. Okay. So what do you do when you get paid a million dollars in cash? Do you know how you do it? You report less. I don't know. <laughs> well, you don't report it. You don't have to report it at all. Yeah, yeah you don't have to Cash. report it at all. You have to report like the bare minimum. Yeah. They wouldn't even count the money at the end of a show at a yeah. stadium. They would weigh it. Oh, okay. Because they knew the weight per bag. Sure. That's how bands were getting paid in that wow. era. So That's crazy. Yeah. So when you have a band that's just getting paid and they have to like, weigh the money, they don't count it. That's They're going to still want some dopey shit, but yeah, the way the show worked, the way that show worked out is if, if the band wants a crazy something and it's on the rider, sure. It comes at a final show cost. So you can give whatever fuck you want, but it's just less money that you're, you're going to put in your own pocket is what Brian's point was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I never thought about that though, about those old like stadium shows and shit, how they paid the bands and they didn't count the money. They just waited. That's fascinating. Never thought the about first that. person who told me that was Siv from Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah. Because he was uh he had a deal with like one of them big time managers of all that stuff. And that's what the guy was saying. And it's blown my mind since I've known that. That was uh another great this is hardcore moment for me seeing Gorilla Biscuits because I thought it was a band that I was never gonna get to see. You know? Um, um that was that in was the, insane. And and in the first year, too. in the first year of the fest, we couldn't get that. Mm-hmm. So this is hardcore happened the week after the Gorilla Biscuits return tour. Okay. And in my head, I'm like, fuck, we didn't get to book Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah. So like you, I, 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 I've grown up, obviously you hear the bands that I've been in punishment, shattered realm, the band I toured with this four years a roadie, mm-hmm. not so connected to the Gorilla Biscuits sonically or aesthetically, mm-hmm. but it's still right. hardcore. And Absolutely. without that records that they was put out, there's no hardcore. So I was really grown up on like, 
you got to know these bands. Even if yeah. you don't love them, you got to fucking listen to them. And I think Start Today is still one of my favorite hardcore records of all time. Oh, and yeah. um, so it's, now it's that... undeniably good. So now we've done Gorilla Biscuits. They, put, they were the first Saturday headliner at the first Electric Factory, this hardcore in 2012. Mm-hmm. They came back and played Sunday in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then they played... Sun, they were the last band to play This Is Hardcore. Before the pandemic, they play oh, they with close out the they closed out the weekend in 2019 on the Sunday. OK, and uh, a tidbit, every not everyone gave me shit, but some people had some questions about why um, Saves a Day was headlining Saturday. Mm-hmm. But Saves a Day stayed at the show all day Sunday and rocked out for all those bands and was like on stage loving every minute of Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah, um, actually, you know. That kind of not to go off on a tangent, but what since you brought saves the day up, um, we had a discussion on an earlier podcast where we were kind of talking about bands that might not necessarily be hardcore, but we consider them hardcore because they came up in the scene and they're hardcore kids and whatever. Like, I always use the example of Code Orange. Um, if I listen to Code Orange, I would not call what i'm listening to hardcore but they came up through the scene and they played you know the vfw shows and they played the this is hardcore and you know what i mean um and i think like when i look at a band like saves the day like that like that probably at the time threw me for a loop too to see a band like that but at the end of the day it's it's really cool um that you know hardcore kind of accommodates and like steps out of its comfort zone in areas like that because you know bands like that they paved their own you know saves the day did a lot in their own scene and everything like that um but you said you got a little bit of pushback from having them on uh headline saturday i will what i'll say is this is that the internet allows space for people to make comments yeah yeah (laughs) and that's really like where i'll leave it at that like yeah there's always somebody who has a smarmy or like sideways thing to say um, there's an old New York hardcore band that's been not playing shows longer than they ever did play shows called SFA. Mm-hmm. And this old this old man, Brendan, regularly will write, This isn't hardcore. And it's like, <laughs> yo, pussy, maybe not by 1982 standards, it's not hardcore, but like what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You know, we're talking about we're talking about anywhere depending on what you gauge the beginning of hardcore between 78, 79. Hardcore is well over 40 years old at this point. Yeah. There's been so many influences that have helped steer and change the momentum of this of hardcore in general, that my job in this is hardcore is to book bands that people enjoy. And aesthetically, if I can put on a killing time, if I can put on a gorilla biscuits and then, you know, who cares if it saves the day, you know, like that same, that same fest, you know, code orange headline the Friday Saturday was saves the day. And, mm. Sunday was Gorilla Biscuits. The argument can be made about who's not what and commercial commercial success. And it's like, you know, um, Gorilla Biscuits sold more records so far than Code Orange ever has just mm-hmm. off of one record because that's how long they've been around and how popular that record is. Dude, but no one slanders GB for being like, oh, you know, this is like, yeah, they sold a fucking shit ton of records because of how good the record was yeah. and how the fact it's been out since 1989. You know, it's like, people sometimes put their foot in their mouth when they start making smarmy online comments. And so there was some, but it ain't going to make me sleep any less. The same day yeah. show was 
Save the Day show was fun for the people who love the fucking band, and everybody walked out of the room smiling and happy, and that's all I can ask for. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, no matter what you do, you're not going to make anyone, ha- everyone happy anyway. So, what's the point? What's the point in even no, I agree. trying? Um, I agree. So, okay. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit of like punishment era and you know the the bands you were seeing at the time or playing with and where were you guys playing um was there you know like what what were the popping venues in philly when you were in punishment well like like a lot of things that happened in philadelphia mm-hmm. the main venues are sometimes run at like against a, a wave of do you get the room if there's no big metal show do you get the room if there's no big punk show you know hardcore shows have always been smaller it's a smaller piece of the pie Mm -hmm. so you know there was a time when manball could only play jc dobbs on south street which is like a show from back in 1994 you know like yeah early on um sick of it all and biohazard sheer terror that was my first hardcore show i saw and that was in 93 and that was a huge show. Looked like a metal show to me. Now, then I go for, to a small. Just for perspective, real quick, like it, sick of it all in Philadelphia in 1993 or Madball in Philly in 1994. Um, how much, like, how big's your crowd at that point? Are you are you talking hundreds of people show up for Madball? In well, 94? this is what I was going to get into. Is okay, okay. so sick of it all. So sick of it all plays the TLA, mm-hmm. one and a half blocks from JC Dobbs. Sick of it all, Biohazard, and fucking Sheer Terror. They didn't sell it out, but they came close. They probably had like eight or 900 people. I don't know the ticket number, but it felt like a packed metal show. For real. And it was totally wild. And there was Nazis getting beat the fuck up, security getting beat up. And um, you can find the show on YouTube, but it was pretty, you know, here I am, a long hair metal kid being exposed to my first real hardcore punk show. Yeah. And just fucking mind blown. Well, fast forward to January 94. And Manball's playing down the street, and it's a bar with a small stage. Mm-hmm. And there might be a hundred and something people. Now it was packed, butts to nuts, but it might have been, I don't think it held more than 200 persons. Yeah. And so what happens often is, you know, Sigmatol was really on a tear. They had done some tours with thrash metal bands. Their record was on a label that had a lot of pr- uh, promotion and distribution. So Sigmatol and Biohazard along with sheer terror that's like three killers in the early 90s you know so that was yeah. like a stacked bill yeah and manball i mean the tour of manball was downset as they were coming up it was downset manball dog eat dog and the opener was a delaware band called hard response that was also a packed show but just like now we're a packed show with opening bands yeah they might be only two three hundred you could have another show that could have a thousand persons if the band is on a bigger label, bigger promotion, a longer career, yeah. you know, like that, that same level of numbers uh, statically between the two crowds is still being seen 30 years later. Yeah. Those are insane lineups for shows too. And like uh hard response is an awesome band too. I know that band. Um, so when did you uh, start playing in punishment then? Punishment came at the end of the dysphoria tour in 99 mm-hmm. me and mike brown got off we got off the l and which is in philly went to my mom's house and we're like we're doing a band because we were saying it we're like we got to come back and do this we got to come back and do a tour we got to come back and do a tour 
that was August of 99. We played our first show February of 2000. Mm-hmm. And we played in under a year. We went back to California in less than a year. For real. That was our whole plan. Yeah. Like we're going back to California. Punishment never had long-term world conquering goals. Mm-hmm. It was very much like we want to go to California. We're going to start a band. Mike Mig, who's from the Bristol area, which Bristol's right outside of Philadelphia. It's in between it's a small little city in between Philadelphia, the suburbs, and then Trenton. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's almost a little bit closer to Trenton than it is the, the most northeast part of Philadelphia. Sure. Mike was in a band called Scarred for Life before that. There's a bunch of bands in that whole area, that whole little county above. Obviously, we're all from Pennsylvania, so you understand when I talk about counties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the Montgomery County. Actually, that might be Bucks, one of them too. You know, okay. I think that is Bucks up top. But that whole area had small venues, bars, uh, American Legion halls, vets halls. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and 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 yeah, they had a, quite a few halls. Fire halls was big over there. A lot of the Trenton area, and that area had a lot of fire halls and American legions and some vet halls. And there was just random shows. And then later on in the later on, as punishment would start playing, they had a place in Ben Salem, which was called the Palanca Park, which a lot of metalcore, hardcore shows were booked. The guy Bob Meadows, who sang for a life once lost, he was like the purveyor. That was a big caterer hall okay and um even damien from punishment put on a crazy show there was like before punishment really got started it was like mushmouth diecast clubber lang like i mean there's always cool shows at these places but that was outside the city and um so yeah punishment started in early in the in february 20 2020 and um yeah what was your uh favorite favorite show that you played with punishment ever yeah fuck i mean the somehow with the resurgence with the from within records and Bob Wilson, who's been in mm-hmm. mother mercy and all the man's they love the video of the first punishment video. Yeah. Like the first show we ever played. So like, obviously that first show really was to me outstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just for a lot of reasons. Uh, we played a show. It was Etown concrete dysphoria all um, above this world. And we got the open above this world was Mikey hoods and random guys that would go off to be in bigger bands, like set your goals and okay. terror and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But he was that he was on tour at Dysphoria at the time, Dysphoria and all above this world would go on to do a split, a three-way split it was hoods, Dysphoria and above this world. So um, we were punishment had Mike Brown on bass. the tour. They did Dysphoria and hoods. Mike Brown played bass for them. And the culmination was like an East Coast run. So it started in the Midwest. We met up with Above This World. We did a bunch of Midwest dates. I wrote it. Mike played bass. We got the Philly. Punishment got the open. Our demo cassette was ready, which we recorded in the house. Yeah. On a four track. And then we played this show. It was a rave place. I told the guy, give us all the fucking lights you got. Because he's like, what do you kind of lights you want? I'm like, give me fucking everything. So the set looked like Star Wars, which is a ridiculous thing. <laughs> um Several times, our friends beat up people in the crowd to the point where the fight got onto the stage. That was the culmination of us getting asked to be on a compilation, which became famous, which is probably another one of my favorite shows. There was a show that says Hardcore Show on the TLA, which is the venue I just talked about with the sick of it all. That show was like Bad Luck 13, Dysphoria, All Else Failed, Kensington, like all these bands that all of our friends' bands were on this compilation. Yeah. Well, when Punishment opened up with our intro, mm-hmm. 
everybody went off and there was a wild fight with the security. The whole show got shut down and the Philadelphia hardcore uh, scene beat up all the bouncers and destroyed all the front windows (laughs) of the TLA, which is why if you go to the Philly hardcore shows, Facebook, there's a picture of a bunch of cops and the marquee saying hardcore show. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So like, um, that's awesome (laughs) to to be honest, Philadelphia. And and that's the reason why I explain it. The minute that that happened, yeah, you know, people knew about Bad Luck 13, but mm-hmm. for some reason, punishment took a lot of ire. Sure. So, like, we weren't allowed to play certain places. We were like, oh, that punishment band destroyed the deal. <laughs> like, funny, because at the time, at that same time, I mean, a year and a half before that, there was shootings outside the, the Trocadero with Nazis, and there was constant fights and stabbings. And we were like in a ga- street gang war with like two separate Nazi gangs, one from Eastern Pennsylvania, another from Atlantic City. And yet here's this band with just 20 year old kids. And they're like, ah, this band can't play. They're too fucking dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy. And I don't I don't want to like harp on this topic too much, but it's crazy how like I see a lot of young people that just they don't know that they're actually used to be like nazi gangs that would show up at shows and fight people and shit like that and i've heard so many stories from guys like just like yourself of you know that business being handled a long time ago and like how much worse it would be if you guys hadn't if you had backed down or like hadn't stepped up and you know fought those kinds of fights and shit like that that's just uh just a little observation because um I just I don't know. I feel like a, I feel like a lot of younger people just don't know that that history like that. A lot of you guys stepped up and cleared that kind of shit out of the scene to make way for good bands to prosper and safe scenes for people like actual unity to grow and stuff like that. So. Well, it's like what you step into if you're a hardcore kid today, you either only care about what's right now incendiary knock loose tsunami gridiron pain of truth or depending on who you're around which a lot of young kids don't hang out with older people mm-hmm. so all they hear is the echo chamber of what's around yeah when i came to shows i was already coming around people who were older than me and their friends were older than them mm-hmm. so i got told you never saw the pagan babies you're a loser I basically got told you missed all of like how you said you were bummed out that you missed. Like oh, I grew yeah. up basically be told I could basically <laughs> be missed. told I missed everything. I missed, missed everything. I missed everything. Shit. Yeah. I missed everything. Like, like, I don't even like what, you know, like it was like almost a joke, but kind of funny. Like, well, you missed this band. You missed that band. That band already broke up. This band broke up. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, fuck. I miss, <laughs> you know, like Dude, I started not- going to shows in 2004 and I've never seen no retreat. And I live in Altoona. <laughs> well, like, I mean, like, and we could get we can no no like we can get in and out it's like no retreat you know they used to play cc's before he moved out west yeah. and the thing is is like in the modern era people will take the videos and the, and the youtube stuff from built upon mm-hmm. and no retreat and they'll build this giant idea of a band mm-hmm. that wasn't there yeah and it's not because no retreat didn't want to do it has nothing to do with because Built Upon one doing it. There wasn't this hegemony, which we'll get into about PA Hardcore and kind of like how shows are now. Yeah. You know, there's 300 miles between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. 
I could go to fucking Boston and back quicker than I can get to. Nah, I probably couldn't get to Boston back, but sometimes I feel like the drive, it feels lighter because it takes us about four and a half where the Western drive for us is literally almost five. Yeah. And so yeah, it's, a long it's harder. And, and because of dysphoria, we used to travel to Erie all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was hard to go out the West. Now, um, that doesn't mean that built upon and no retreat are terrible bands and people shouldn't talk about them because if you're from Western Pennsylvania, you don't put on for what you came before you. You're a, you're a sucker, mm-hmm. but understand if you're a young kid, you find a band on YouTube, whether it's from PA, New Jersey, Connecticut, wherever, don't create a backstory around this band, ask and find out what was up with them. Yeah. Because, you know, especially there's a lot of, there's a lot of has to do with gangs and shit. And the reason why, certain bands stopped playing, you know, mm-hmm. mine included. But when we came into things, we were told some stuff. Number one is we fight Nazis around here, mm-hmm. which is the complete opposite of what would happen when I would go to metal shows. We go to a metal show in Philadelphia and it was 20 guys sing Highland. Now, if you talk to the godfather of Pennsylvania hardcore, Richie Crutch, mm-hmm. he can go on and talk to you about the airport music halls. New York city highs would come down and be like, why the fuck are there's all these Nazis? And it's like, because Nazis live in rural cities that are a little fucked up. You know, you, I mean, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania is a beautiful place, but like, you know, Altoona, Pottsville, Pottstown, Reading, these are small cities that, yeah, you know what? We're not country bumpkins, they're small cities. Yeah. Small cities still have same city problems, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People don't realize that, and there is going to be some disenfranchised, weird-ass white dudes that are more racist and all that, where hardcore punk eschews all that kind of stuff. And so... I just happened to come in at the time when the things that I was talking about with the airport music hall, mm-hmm. the Nazi shit in Allentown, that was still really vibrant. And those guys were come down to the Philly shows at the right hardcore shows. Yeah. And so throughout all my early to late teens, this wasn't like, oh, let's cancel this guy because he said something on internet. It was like, yo, there's a show where we know Nazis are coming to. Mm-hmm. There was no, you're not coming. It was just so you know, we're all going to be there. Yeah. And we had to be there. I give, I give a, I'll say something really fucking wild here. No one in this generation is ready to see six or seven guys stand on the floor and take their shirt off and they're fucking covered in Nazi tattoos. Mm -hmm. No one in this generation has ever seen it. No one has ever seen what you do when that happens. You know, Mm -hmm. like there's this modern proud boy bullshit that people think of as Nazis, but these guys were fucking maniacs Mm -hmm. and it would take sometimes 20 to fight six or seven because they just didn't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, it just was a wild time and luckily we got past it, but whether you're at Erie, whether you were in um, Western PA, whether you were in fucking central PA, you had to fight that shit. Yeah. And that's like what makes Pennsylvania and South Jersey hardcore, really different even in the delaware that's why um the guys who i came up under were called the tri-state crew guys from jersey pa and delaware harbor sponsor was a part of that the guys who would be in bad luck were a part of that mm-hmm. and that was the whole thing because there's fucking nazis in maryland or delaware the pa their south jersey you know northeast pa had a shit ton of them mm-hmm. you know like even western out by reddings was a huge amount of them so everywhere where there's a good hardcore scene in pennsylvania from the late 80s into the early 90s into the 2000s and going on, someone in that hardcore scene had to step up and take some fucking L's and fight to make sure the Nazis didn't kick over the shows because 
what people don't realize is it's not it was her presence that was the problem as much as yeah, I mean, also there was a fun thing about wanting to fight. I'm not gonna lie about that part. But they were trying to indoctrinate. They were trying to intimidate. Of course. And I saw at the metal shows, so I was already hip to it. Mm-hmm. They would show up. They'd have flyers. They'd be like trying to bully someone into fucking. You need to come join us and blah blah blah. And if there weren't people already doing that, when I got in, who the fuck knows what would have happened? Mm-hmm. You know. And I've also been friends with a lot of guys who were on that side, who have changed. Yeah. And they'll say like hardcore change and hardcore is what got them out of that. Mm-hmm. It's something that is so unique to, or not so unique, but very omnipresent in our background as a shared Pennsylvania hardcore team mm-hmm. that people have to take note that there is shit that happened that you can't understand. Yeah. So I'm glad th- you brought that I up. Think that, well, I, I mean, like you, you said like, you know, you see a lot of people that get upset about, like a proud boy type organization or something like that. And like, you know, I sympathize with whatever your political beliefs are and that, you know, these people upset you or that group upsets you or whatever. I understand, but there is a distinction between those kinds of groups and the kinds of groups that you're talking about, which like you said, you know, take your shirt off and they're covered in swastika tattoos. Um, I do think I agree with you hundred percent. I think that that would be jarring for a lot of people uh, especially younger than me to see something like that, you know, um, in the flesh, as opposed to just like a picture of it on their phone or something, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I always put, um, big ups to the, the old heads as I like to say, but just, you know, there, there's a lot of house cleaning that you guys did way back in the day. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's, always articulated because it's like i listen to your podcast and stuff and it's like you don't just sit around and brag about like how you build a scene you just continue to rep the scene so you know i don't know those little pieces of history are definitely important and you seem to know a whole shitload of history about pennsylvania hardcore um so i kind of i wanted to move back into uh you know we were right around like I think 2001, 2002 punishment era, which is right around the time I believe strength or I almost said strength for a reason. Shattered Realm was uh, starting up, right? So punishment started in 2000. Right. And late 2000, Eric Cooper, my buddy, Chris Collins, a guy named Alex, um, Chris, who would eventually would sing and Al would start doing Shattered Realm. They're from New Jersey. And by 2001, they would start playing a lot more and punishment got to play with them early on mm-hmm. and they were from New Jersey. So not only did they play the shows that we would play in like the M M M hall, mm-hmm. which is out in, uh, by the shore and, um, fuck, I forget the name of the town. I feel like a dumbass could be on there all the time. Um, but because they had Chrome and Sayerville, this is a place that hold thousands of people they became a band that would play with this bigger audience. And uh, eventually they played with Eulogy. And my friend, John, who was the guy from, for, he was in Morning Again. Then he was in um, a bunch of other bands. He was in, he ran Eulogy Records. Mm-hmm. He hit me up. He's like, what do you think about the Shadow Round Band? I'm like, dude, they're fucking awesome. He's like, oh, I'm thinking about signing them. And um, Shadow Realm had a different trajectory. They were way more metal. They had a bigger audience. And they could go to that level where punishment wasn't really like that. But the first singer quit Chris Collins. The guitar player, Chris, became the singer who was sang on the first record. Mm-hmm. Then eventually they would rec- they would recruit Joe Nunn to play on the second record and help out. 
but the the band was already ripping and rolling without Joe Nunn before the whole thing got going. Then in 2003, Punishment toured with Ringworm. Shattered Realm was supposed to do that tour. They didn't. The singer and the drummer quit. Chris Rage, who used to play in Fury of Five, joined Shattered Realm. I couldn't do the tour because Punishment's van caught on fire. I was getting tired of fucking tours that ended in chaos. And I was like, I'm just going to work and make money. I like my girlfriend. I'm not fucking going on another tour for a bit. Mm -hmm. So they got Paul from the Jersey Shore to do a tour or two with them. They went to Europe. They did an American tour, too. And then I got asked in 2004 to join. So the whole time Shattered Realm was a band, like that logo that's on the first record, Mm -hmm. I was the one who came up with it. Like early on, I booked their first U.S. tour in 2002. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to do the tour in 2003. With us together, it didn't happen. So even though I didn't sing until 2004, I was very connected to the band basically from the outset. In fact, I did a short run tour from the East Coast to the West Coast, but then with just Bad Luck and Shattered Realm. Mm-hmm. It's like I was very involved in the band. But um, with Punishment, we would play in Philadelphia, but the suburbs. Right. So we would play Delaware County. We would play in South Jersey. We would play occasionally in Baltimore. And we would play Reading. We would play Altoona. We would. There wasn't much of a clear field scene at the time that kind of started fading out. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of dysphoria, we got to play in Erie with uh, the Disciple guys. And the Disciple guys had Punishment and Mushmouth come out for one of their Shocktoberfests. And so we were lucky that people knew who we were. We played Laga one time, but Punishment had so many van problems at a certain point that it was really hard. Again, it was really hard to go West. Mm -hmm. So we would get asked to play Ohio a lot, and we would get asked to play Western PA, but it was actually easier for us to jump in cars and play New Jersey or Baltimore then try to find enough people to go drive out West. So we didn't get to play there as much as when I would tour with dysphoria. Yeah. And then with Shattered Realm, you know, nothing I did with punishment was smart or right. All of it was just young from the balls. Let's just fucking go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. That's why we had a million different members. It's why our recordings were never amazing, but it was more about us just playing live and just not being a Philly life. Wasn't very fun. And we were still, acting like little kids like they didn't really there was no business plan for a shadow uh, for punishment where a shattered realm earlier on had bigger audience and when they started playing some of these shows they got to play with that band from a second story window mm-hmm. which is why they wrote that whack-ass song from an april situation when they do that singing because they were hoping to get into that bullshit metal world but eulogy and that was a label that they were on they had a bigger name they got to go to europe earlier and so, but they couldn't get a guy to stay and sing. So I joined in 2004. I toured with them until the middle of 2008. And I had a court case. I was looking at 15 years. So I had to stop touring and just like get ready in case shit was going to go bad with that, which it didn't, but I was concerned. Yeah. And so um, I ended up being the singer of the band for the longest period of time straight. Okay. And uh, do you consider Shattered Realm still active now? I know you guys play every now and then. I mean, we're headlining a thing called the War at the Shore, June eighteenth. I actually just um, saw that today. Yeah. So, so yeah. what do you do when you're in a band and the people that wrote songs that you would eventually play on aren't in the band anymore? Well, there's fans. There's people that want to see it. My my great argument for it is, Joe Nunn is someone who people do not want to see at hardcore shows anymore, and. He's not going to come to hardcore shows. 
the band is loved by fans. I, I toured with the band longer than everybody else. So it's not like, oh, this singer who was around for six months. It's like, you know, uh, no, I fucking, you know, <laughs> this is as much as my band is theirs because, you know, we did a lot of fucking work together, you know, and I know that when I was in Shadow Realm the first time out, I was 24, 25. Well, actually, it was 23 turning 24. And it was fun to do. And by the time I was 28 turning 29, I was worried about doing time. And I just wanted to calm the fuck down on just doing anything. I just wanted to stick around home. Mm-hmm. The time I had younger kids, my daughter started living with me. Touring wasn't really an option. And the band didn't do anything. And then sure. they did this East Coast Tsunami in 2010. They did the summer of hate in 2011 and a couple East coast shows. And then they stopped playing. So without me, they've played less than when I've played doing that, you know, like coming back. Sure. And argumentatively we should write songs and record, Mm -hmm. but when you take someone's money to record, (laughs) you know, if you take someone's money to record, they want to see your band play and I have to fucking make sure that we're able to do it. And I'm, Chris, our drummer now, Chris Marguerite, was in Shark Attack. He's been in a million bands throughout all the time, and I've known him. Mm-hmm. Since this whole story, I've known Chris since I was 17 years old. Okay. Chris is my man. He's from Delaware County. You know, he's a father. He's a business owner. I don't know if he could do a 30-day tour. Sure. You know, that's where my head goes. Sure. You know, we have on shit now from MH Chaos from Chicago. I just had him and we have, show. Yeah, and yeah. we have uh, Kane, who's in both Vomit Forth as a singer, and he's also in Eyeball cool eyeball gang you know like we have guys that can play amazing and when we play it's fucking fun but can we be a touring thing so that's really the question uh are we active yeah should we have more stuff yeah we probably should but yeah a lot of this is fun and it's because the kids enjoy it that we do it you know it's not like when shattered realm was a band from the minute the popularity started being a thing from like 2003 to 2008 members of the band thought like all we got to do is one more tour and we're gonna get big enough to make money Right. And I was looking around going, uh, uh, and that's why by the time 2006 and the seven happened, I was already in a union job mm-hmm. and I was like, look, I need to fucking make money. I got kids, you know, I don't expect hardcore to pay my fucking bills like this. I'm not a kid anymore. Yeah. And I was making more money just going to work than a tour would provide. So mm-hmm. we would tour in the winter. You know, we went to Europe a couple of times. So Shadow Realm's active, depending on who you want to argue with on the internet. <laughs> I'm not the real singer or whatever you want to say. I don't care. None of them can beat me in Chinese checkers, uh, India leg race, a fist fight. So I don't care really what anybody has to say <laughs> about this, this era of shattered realm. Yeah. We have songs. We'll probably play some new songs at the Atlantic city show. Mm-hmm. And um, I like that people still care about that music when they started. I really love them. Mm-hmm. When I got asked to be a part of it, I was excited. Still a positive part of my life. Mm-hmm. Got to see Europe because of the band. And just because Jonan sucks doesn't mean that kids who like Shattered Realm shouldn't um, get a chance to see them. Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm i going to do my best to actually get out to Atlantic City. I just saw it today, and that lineup is great. Um, I had a few other questions I wanted to ask you while I've got you. Um, the first one is, what happened to the Barbary? Barbary was bought by John Redding, who had stock from vitamin water as an employee. Okay. He's like a real big old hipster dude. So what happens with hardcore shows in Philadelphia? Hey, we're a new place and we don't have business. Hey, do you guys want to do some shows? 
Yeah, we love to do shows. Sure, do anything you want. Hey, we're starting to get popular now. You can only do shows on these days and between these times and these times. Mm-hmm. The bigger the barber got, the more hipster the area got, mm-hmm. the less they needed our hardcore shows. Not that they ever needed, but the less they wanted us to do shows. Because okay. all ages shows don't generate the same bar ring. It's not worth it. So yeah. the Barbary was eventually sold by John Redden. He would have later kill a girl on the back of his motorcycle driving drunk. And I think he's out of jail right now. He bought a venue called. Oh, it's a, a uh, like a old like after hours drug bar in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And his family technically owns it, so he can't legally be sued for it. Okay. So people aren't playing there. Even though the DIY, we love hardcore, we love punk rock. We're dying to paint punk rock. We only do things this way. They're doing 21 plus shows. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love when DIY, I love when punk rock DIY people talk shit about the right way to do shows and they do the 21 plus show. It always cracks me up. Right. So he owns that place, but the Barbary is not something that's uh, available to us. Okay. So- Which happens a lot if you want me to talk about venues. Yeah. Different venues at different times in Philadelphia come and mm-hmm. go. The Trocadero would do big shows. They had upstairs, but it was 21 plus the balcony. But besides fear and a couple random shows, there wasn't really a lot of big hardcore shows up there. The TLA was booked by a guy named John Hampton, who was much like Brian Dilworth would go from an independent to a live nation kind of guy. Fantastic guy. I was lucky. I got to work with him on one Cox bar show at the truck before uh, the truck closed down. The, um, the Barbary was a spot. The Barbary was a place that was cool. Love doing shows there, but they eventually didn't need us anymore. Okay. Uh, I did shows at the Broad Street Ministry, on, which is where we did like the Cro-Mag show, mm-hmm. the first show back in 2008, that kind of stuff. Um, there's a bunch of these like places like this throughout this entire time. I mean, as long as I've been going to shows, which is 30 years, there's well over 30 places that had shows. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to be able to do Kung Fu necktie shows. I think I could probably still do Kung Fu necktie matinees, but that doesn't really help us on a weekday show when we need to have like a small room, like creep records right now, creep records is trying to get us back in the room. They need to do get some permits, the mm-hmm. fire, which is a place that we've on and off did some shows. They said that they don't want to do all ages shows because at the all ages shows, people sit on steps, the neighbors get mad and the people defecate in the street. I remember hearing you talk about that. <laughs> Actually so, that's yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've done shows at almost any place that had a show. I've done a show at, yeah. and I gotta get burned out by it. I get burned out, like, oh yeah, we'll do shit, and then what'll happen is they'll push us out, right? And then some random kid with a terrible band will be like, "I'll just do shows," and they'll be twenty-one plus. I hate twenty-one plus shows. I hate doing them. Occasionally, a handful of times, I've done them for the oi punk stuff, mm-hmm. and even then, I, I just get dissatisfied. I grew up going to all ages shows. I don't want to turn some fucking kid away. I don't care about some bar ring and making money off the bar. I want young kids to experience hardcore punk in its rawest form. And I just, I, I, I'm not happy when I see a 21 plus on a flyer aggravates the fuck out of me. Yeah. We have a, um, extinction AD rhythm of fear, um, street struck tomorrow night here in Altoona. And it was 21 plus and it's actually all ages now. I don't really understand the the law of it, but I guess they're allowed to have all ages. It's at a bar, but you know, it's allowed to be an all ages show. So that's pretty cool. We've um we've been seeing some younger faces that shows around here finally. Hoping to get more of them out. Thing you have to do is be open to them, you know? Yeah. Um oh yeah. We we have a lot of new kids. Mm-hmm. 
we have a lot of new kids and I, I say when I start seeing them, let's make sure someone's not just Sparta kicking these kids across the floor. Yeah, let's. I, I mean, granted, that's how we got treated, sure. but that was I, then. This is now. Yeah. The deal is, is if you want things to grow, you got to plant seeds mm-hmm. and you got to nurture these things. That's why, like on my podcast, I talk a lot about history and stuff that I've learned. So hopefully some young person can impart and understand how much cooler is it if instead of being a consumer, instead of going to a show where your job is to pay the door, buy a beer, buy a T-shirt and put horns up. Imagine if you told some kid you're a part of a culture that has 40 years of existence and that you as a kid could one day be in a band that could influence and change things in the scene. Hardcore is malleable and it belongs to everybody who truly wants to be involved. Mm -hmm. That being said, in this TikTok generation and all these like random internet kids that are popping up, admission paid does not guarantee you license to just go around and have like this car blanche to say like, well, this is how I feel. You can have your feelings, but it'd be like taking no, taking no uh, classes, but trying to pass a history class, yeah. you know, like learn some things before you start spouting yeah. off. Nobody not because I don't want you feel stupid. You. Yeah. Nobody gets well, no one cares. Yeah. And on top of it, you're probably don't understand enough about the situation. Yep. And I've seen some stupid ideas, but these are young kids. And I, I understand when you're young, I God bless. I didn't have the fucking internet when I was young. There's a thousand million things that I was wrong about when I was young involving hardcore punk. And I'm glad that I've had the time and no internet history to go over that. Mm -hmm. But I want these young kids to come in clean, enjoy the thing, but also don't don't immediately start showing up and immediately saying this, 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 and this is wrong because it's like, you just got here. Take some time, learn a little bit, take a second to breathe, find your spot. You know, um, another really cool thing about hardcore that I like I was teasing the DIY punk people, but like, if you don't like how someone like me do shows or Bob or Chris Mahmood or any of us do shows, you can go and find a stupid bar in your area and just do your own fucking shows and you could create your own goofy little scene mm-hmm. and you could just be happy being the king of your own little treehouse if you really want. And that happens a lot in the city. We get a lot of people that transplant for colleges. They move to West and South Philly and they do house shows. And we would never know about these little micro chasm goofy scenes. And they literally show up as the, well, we don't want to be like those guys. It's like, oh, what? Opening, uh, being open to new people, book a ton of shows. You don't want to be like that? Cool, man. Do your own thing then, kid. I don't care. Yeah. It's always been bizarre when people set up in our city and then talk about us like in a negative fashion, you know? Yeah, right. No, I know. And and like the message I'm always trying to push, especially doing this show, is just unity, unity, unity. Like, you know, we... A lot of us might be different. There's different styles of hardcore and there's different mindsets and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're all here for the same reason. And, you know, the more we unite, the more we reach out to one another and get to know each other and everything, the stronger, obviously, that it gets. Um, And I I mean, you know, we kind of have had that, too, even in a town like Altoona. You know, we had a hardcore scene and we had a punk scene. And there were bands like, you know, Common Enemy and Radical Attack and, uh, you know, just like bands from that kind of scene, like ANS and shit like that, that like a lot of hardcore kids wouldn't come out and see. And then there was, you know, hardcore bands coming through all the time that the punk kids wouldn't come out and see. And I just always thought it was silly because it was like, yo, we're so small, you know, like if we repped each other's shows, this would be so much better. Um, but you know, 
there was always I kind of like a glass wall in our town. Well, so small town has a different identity factor. Yeah. You know, you're the punks like uh, Brighton Beach was the punks, uh, the the punks versus the rockers, the mods versus the rockers. Mm. You know, like it's easy to be, oh, well, I'm a hardcore kid. And then, uh, you know, they have a different opinion than what punk rock is. I like when Roger says, I don't trust the, I don't trust any hardcore kid who didn't listen to punk rock. Mm-hmm. You know, um, obviously metal has had a huge influence in hardcore music, but young kids should always get their basis in punk rock. So they have a better understanding that the two things are entwined. Right. You know, whether you listen to agnostic front discharge, negative approach, exploited, all these things have a correlation between the marriage of hardcore punk metal and all of it kind of like locked in. Once people realize these are some of the best bands we've ever had in the scene, they're 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Should tell you, oh yeah, hardcore and punk should be one thing. And at various times we get lucky that the kids who are punk rock with the big jackets, they feel welcome enough. But I've also seen kids kick them and be an asshole to them and be like, yeah. hey, fuck these guys. You know, there's always going to be social things. My my goal as a promoter is to do the best we can, make make shows available, happy for kids to come in that are brand new, whether, you know, no matter, I mean, we have, we have kids that don't look like anything, the kind of kids we grew up with. And instead of being like, look at these fucking nerds, we celebrate them. We we're excited for them. I hope that they continue to find their place in hardcore where they start some bands and they do their thing. And and going back to what I said, it's like, I don't want kids to not do their own thing. I want them to do their own thing, but I don't like when they make blanket statements with no information about what's already been established or what's happened. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I see that a lot on the internet and it really aggravates me because so much of hardcore history and is about the unification. It's about being hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is, is people look for the things because of the pejorative of the social media con- like discourses right now is how are we different? Why aren't we looking for what's the same? You know, yeah. like I say it often when I'm on stage or if I get on stage, my see is like right now in whatever show you go to that day, you are the only people in the world in that room. Think about that. Every show you go to, you're the only fucking people in the world experiencing that thing. Mm-hmm. I said this also. You could book the same show four times in a row, the same four bands and the same four, you know, Monday through Thursday. Every show will be different. It's because the people are going to be different. The people in hardcore make the changes. And they're the, they're the, they're the thing that makes all this happen. They're the bands, they're the kids on the floor, the kids who buy merch, they're the kids who do podcasts, they're the kids who do zines. And people want to look for reasons yeah. instead of finding, instead of reasons to, oh, this is why we're all together. They look for reasons to say, I don't like what someone else is doing. And it bothers me because it's like, look, if you don't like how one thing's done, you have the opportunity by just doing a zine. Right. You can literally write 10 things on a piece of paper and make a bunch of pictures and you can put a fucking five-page zine out. And some kid's going to be excited to get it. And some random kid from Indonesia now because the internet's going to check it out and like it, you know, like with the, with the speed of the internet and all this stuff going on, there really is the opportunity for hardcore to have a bigger level of not only not so much inclusivity because that's already really preached about on social media, but Mm -hmm. understanding that we have so much more in common than we have different. Yeah. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. And I love zines too. Um, That's something that I think, I mean, I'm sure it exists somewhere, but you know, where I'm at, you know, it feels pretty dead. Uh, Glenn, I don't know. You, you know, Glenn, right? Uh, yeah. Glenn, yeah. He, uh, he did a zine. I've he just had a, a kid on here somewhere. Yeah. 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 Oh, he just, yeah, uh, he just, uh, adopted 
um his daughter it's yeah yeah um, yeah, I, yeah i was like hey he had a kid that's like in my head like that's what it yeah. was but yeah he adopted his daughter and that's like yeah. another thing like think about that there's some fucking real values in pennsylvania hardcore that i think people forget about mm-hmm. because you know i'm a city person so like so many good like to me i look at the the people that like stand out in uh in hardcore big carl mm-hmm. from strength for a reason oh, who yeah. celebrating 25 years Big Carl is probably one of the most wholesome humans you've ever met in your life. Yeah. You know, like the PA hardcore scene has always had these fucking grown ass men that are willing to step up, whether it's Richie Crutch, fucking Derek Verace, all these different people in hardcore in Pennsylvania. There's not like this shady bullshit to them. Very kind of like open, super welcoming, grown ass Mm -hmm. man. I, I, I love being surrounded. And these are the guys that we came up with in PA. So when I saw the Glenn thing and the fact that he adopted his kid, that's fucking amazing. Yeah, dude, absolutely. And the people that you named, um, like Derek, Carl, Rich, uh, I remember everybody who was nice to me when I was like first going to shows and coming up and I would meet bands or talk to them after they were done playing or whatever. And uh, they were always, all three of those dudes were always, you know, pushing us and like, what like whatever band you were in they'd watch your band and support you and shit like that and uh just like you said i mean that's that's what it's about that's what it's always about and just off a tangent real quick um glenn is an amazing i grew up with glenn i mean i've i've known him since uh junior high but like glenn is awesome he's done a lot for our scene here and uh, i can't remember what his zine was called but he did one for a minute he put one together and it was really cool but he also did a lot of good things um with brick by brick if you see back here behind me i have the, the one poster hanging up brick by brick that he and I, think, I had an awesome time playing that yeah yeah he uh he's done a lot for our local scene so big ups to glenn i uh, wanted to give you guys a portrait because i know you said you want to hear about it mm-hmm. pennsylvania hardcore to me has always been a patchwork of friends from different areas and the networking, not the social networking we talk about with social media, Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, TikTok, whatever your era is. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania is the VFW hall. It's the small town, small show. It's the big city. You know, um, whether it was it's, it's in the Allentown, in the parking lot. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> so for instance, like in Allentown, there would be big shows. And then together, the Northeast and the Philly people get together because we knew, fuck, hate breeds coming. If we all if we all don't go, we might have to deal with Nazis the whole time. Mm-hmm. And we would go to shows out there just to be like, well, we don't want them guys to get outnumbered by Nazis. Mm-hmm. There's also like these small, amazing little towns like Manicoke has been doing. They've been involved in hardcore. They're synonymous with hardcore worldwide. But it's a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania mm-hmm. that also had like blood for blood play like three or four times. Blood for Blood's played more times in Nanny Coke than Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking great. Pennsylvania, uh, whether your time is at the CCs and you see him when it started to expand out west, or your time is Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, where the hall shows that the Deforia would put on would bring all these bands from Boston and Rhode Island and Connecticut and Long Island to, to the area, or even in Maryland with Apathy, or if your time is in fucking central PA and you're bouncing between uh what was that place it was called state college and they had the crowbar and they had another venue uh or you went out to clearfield and you saw one of the crazy shows at the prison 
or, you know, you were lucky to see some of them small Altoona uh, VFW shows. Mm-hmm. I remember we played there and it was like the whole pit was uh, small and sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to play out in this town right outside of Harrisburg. I seen 25 to life out there, Carlisle PA. Okay. Yeah. There was a time when Carlisle used to have shows. Uh, I've seen shows in places in towns like Lightus. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. That's like in between Hershey and Philly, mm-hmm. you know, like sometimes, you know, people, especially because a lot of uh, hardcore is New York city centered, mm-hmm. like the, the uh, idea of hardcore is like New York city idea or like Boston. It's like, dude, PA PA strength is the connections and bands, you know, mm-hmm. before Chris move would be the owner of club reverb. That motherfucker was doing shows in halls in Reading, Pennsylvania and bringing bands from like all at war to a hall out in the middle of nowhere, Reading, Pennsylvania. He would also do shows at a place called the top of the rock, which was a haven for Nazis. And somehow those dudes kept the Nazis from fucking up the hardcore shows, even though there was a ton of shows where all the Reading dudes went back to back. You know, I don't think people realize like, you know, even out in um, Erie, here's a group of bands that were, some of them were, uh, what do you call them? Like, Christian infused or Christ inspired, you know, the disciple was a huge band in the Christian world, mm-hmm. but they were the fucking, they had some of the best shows in the late nineties, early two thousands. And who were they asking to come up? Dysphoria, strength for reason, Mushmouth. They always put on for PA. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like there's always been a connectivity, but it's always been in a networking between town to town, to the person, the person. And it's interesting because a lot of other States, I mean, look how the big size it is. It's fucking huge. You know, yeah, but I think younger people who are from not from a big city or a big part of the PA hardcore have to understand is like your little small town that you have has a part has a port. You there, Joe? I think I lost you. Hold on a second here. You're frozen. If you can see me or hear me, you're completely frozen. Really? Now you're back. I that's heard so weird. I, I, that's so weird. I heard you the whole time. You were just like, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I do a, <laughs> I do a land. I do the LAN thing. So. Oh, really? It must have been on. Yeah, my I don't. End, but yeah, you. Yeah, I don't out. do a Wi. I don't do a Wi-Fi thing at all. I do a land thing just because I don't want to deal with that. Sure. But do you remember Fuck. what you were? Do you remember what you were talking? I don't about know when it you, cut out. Okay, okay. Um, well, uh, then I'll just move into the next one. I was listening to uh, From Within is doing a podcast now. He's five episodes yeah. in, and uh, I was listening to his today when I was in the car, and they were talking about their favorite PA hardcore releases. So, what is your favorite all-time favorite hardcore PA hardcore release? Apparently it would have to be wisdom and chains class war. Yeah. Probably is like, if you put me in the modern era because mm-hmm. of how many times I played it, there was yeah. a time in hardcore. There was a time in hardcore where I was on tour with shadow realm. Yeah. And I'm listening to all this mashi mashi kill you motherfucker. Shoot you. What all this shit. And I hear this record and Christmas warrior kept saying, you have to see new wisdom and chains. You have to see wisdom and chains. You have to see wisdom and chains. I heard them. Uh, through the guys in UK who had a CD. Okay. This is when they first started, and it came out with that thing. That thing was so fucking powerful to me because it changed the direction of hardcore towards something that 
I remember as a kid, you know, I remember I grew up. Yeah. I listened to all this metal. I also listened to a lot of, a lot of hardcore punk, a lot of punk, a lot of oi, those sing-alongs, that camaraderie, you know, it, I always liked the juxtaposition of people killing each other during this is hardcore yeah. and wisdom and chains gets on stage and everybody's grabbing each other, climbing up the sing-along. So I think the class war record I've probably listened to the most out of wisdom and chains. I, I and honestly, it's become like a comfort record. You mm-hmm. understand? Like I do. That's yeah. a record. That's a record that I've listened to so many fucking times mm-hmm. and they have other records. I mean, I could, I could easily probably say the same thing about like when God rhythm came out, I don't think that left my car. Yeah. It's a great album. Now, too. Um, die young probably might be up there. Actually, you know what? the die, the die young record was the first one I heard. Mm-hmm. That's got all the, I mean, and every time Dragging Me Down comes, I'm up there singing along. But I think it was the Class War record that just fucking blew me away. Yeah. Just blew me away that this band could come from all these different ideas and put this thing together. Now, um, Dysphoria, the record that they put out, is always going to always stand out to me as probably the most Pennsylvania fucking sounding record. But also because those guys carried this on their back, that hope without reason record really is something that I was glad that I got to be a part of seeing a band go from an, like a like a suburb band that would try hard to get involved in the Philadelphia hardcore scene to be the band that represented the entire area out on these tours. Yeah. You know, um, dysphoria more than anyone else. You know, the crutch went to California or crutch never went to California, but they went to Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, dysphoria laid the path without dysphoria and Chris Spear specifically coming up with this whole how to book a tour, punishment never would have toured, CDC never would have toured. There's so many bands that basically took the right. playbook and ran with it that I think mm-hmm. hope without reason, just because of how many times I've moshed to it, is probably would be my next favorite. Okay. Just because of its impact and the fact that. So many people. I mean, I'm, I, I've been there when they went to Detroit. I was there in Chicago the first time they went. Mm-hmm. Long Island, Massachusetts, Virginia, you know, the whole full U.S. I mean, there's so many things that we did, you know, me just being in the band as a roadie and as a kid and learning about shit, that that record's insanely important. And I think that it's not like, well, this isn't fair because it is what it is, but I think that it's important that people understand that dysphoria is the probably the best way to run your band smart DIY and, and really Chris, I I did him on my podcast episode three, but his, his mode of like networking with people is fucking fantastic. And if bands follow that platform and that playbook, Mm -hmm. it it still works. All the moves still work, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to ask too about um, going to California and kind of making those bonds and everything. Um, was that when they made the hoods connection, like on that tour? Yeah. Okay. Um, Mikey hoods had come to Philadelphia in two, in 98 mm-hmm. and people knew of him. There was record swapping between him and a record label from around here. Mm-hmm. And, um, I want to say hoods even played, they, they definitely played CCs. They might've played one other place in mm-hmm. that 98 run. So then the following year, uh, the band coming correct, which is Rick Healy. Used to be Richie Crutch and the Crutch guys. Mm-hmm. Rick just basically started getting random members. 
So at one point, Judd from Dysphoria was playing guitar in Come and Correct. And Come and Correct had California dates. And so Chris is like, well, if you're using Judd, why don't you have us come out there and we could be part of your backup band? He's like, oh, I got Chris Cap. Chris Cap had played in a straight edge band in New Jersey called Release. You ever see that hoodie character with the X? He's the one who drew it. He's the mm-hmm. first one who did those things. Mm-hmm. So everyone who, who copies that, Chris Release, Chris Cap. Chris Cap went at that time was about to join Bad Luck 13. Actually, no, he wasn't Bad Luck by that time. He was a drummer of Bad Luck. He's an old hardcore dude who was tattooing, and he was friends with Rick, and Rick asked Chris Cappy to play drums. So this Fourier played from Pennsylvania to California to meet up with Come and, Cor- to Come and Correct, and then those shows were only in California. That's the basis for the tour. Okay. So when we got to Sacramento for our first show, it was like, oh, shit, this is like a completely different, different world in every mm-hmm. single way. Um, but, and I mean, they weren't really even up to par as far as like the moshing goes, like their bands weren't like metallic, like this for you, like this for you was seen as like this weird ass entity, right? You know, like people didn't really yeah. understand, like they knew it was hardcore and they loved it, but it kind of blew them the way they're like, wait, what the fuck is this? Like, yeah. And, um, this for you sounds that, like dysphoria, and no one else. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like. They came, they were the early on, their band was a death metal band mm-hmm. and they transitioned more into a hardcore band. That's why that hoodie PA brutal style, mm-hmm. they were worried people would shit on them. Even as late as 98. Oh, they're not like a hardcore band. I'm like, you're a fucking hardcore. Look at the fucking shows you play. Stop being yeah. like this, <laughs> you know, yeah. like they were, they, um, but it was cool to like me and Mike Brown, I would wear a windbreaker and Mike would wear a hoodie. Even though we were roadies, we would mosh for dysphoria hard as fuck. Yeah. And so, like, we were bringing shit that we were doing out here to, like, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Iowa. People had never seen that. They're like, wait, what the fuck is this? Like, we were, like, like we were going to, like, Tucson, Arizona, and people were like, wait, how? What? What the fuck? Like, no one really danced like us at that time. So yeah. that was, like, another cool thing. And we made a lot of connections, and we made a lot of lifetime friends out there. It was fucking fantastic, man. It was, like, a life-changing thing. How did you guys dance? Did you guys dance like people dance now? We, so it's like, I, I te- my daughter's 25 mm-hmm. and she's like moshing at shows now. And I always call her like a rookie. I'm like, you're like a level one mosher. <laughs> <laughs> but like we, I think that we had more style. I think that we had more style. Obviously I'm 41. I'm not fucking 19. So I probably don't move <laughs> as fast as I used to. I think this area really was about style and it was about fun. We hit people hard, mm-hmm. but we never nowadays the hitting is what's emphasized. Yeah. Like style is second to hitting someone. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, now you just get wrecked. Well, it's not even wrecked. <laughs> it's just boring. Yeah. Like it's move out of your it's way. Like smashed. it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, like, yeah, yo, we would kick the fuck out of each other. We smashed everybody. And there was like there was specific moves really just to smash people. Yeah. But what's lost is like I would go to CZ's and try to mosh as close to the floor. There were dudes up there like, no, we're not letting you get in the front of the pit. Like this is what we we run the front of the stage. We're the one that would grab the mic. Like there was a there was this thing about dancing. And that's what hardcore moshing versus dancing kept one bulldoze. I don't fucking mosh. I hardcore dance. He would still say that shit. Mm -hmm. So to me specifically. 
I, I, I remember going to different towns. Little Long Island was like that. Um, my friend, little Greg, rest in peace from IDS. When we met them IDS dudes, they would mosh hard and we would have to mosh hard. We'd hit each other hard. There was never beef, no like hard feelings. It was kind of like, all right, we know we're up in Long Island. If they would see us going off, they'd be like, fuck this. We can't let, you know, like in them Long right, Island shows. Right. And uh, we would go to the Castle Heights shows and people are like, oh, yeah, it's in Philly, dudes. They mosh hard. And it was a lot of love. But it, and, and I don't want to say this in like a weird kids are probably not understand this. It was a dance, man. It wasn't like I'm going to hit you in the face so hard you can't see the rest of the show. I'm doing my fucking move. And if you don't have cognizant, if you're not aware, you're going to get fucking hit. You're going to get hit. But I didn't. Yeah. (laughs) But so nowadays, there's two people the guy who's trying to punch someone and the person who's not paying attention and gets punched. Yo. (laughs) That's That's it. Like, fucking pay attention. You know, like, hey, uh, put your stupid fucking phone away. You're going to get punched directly in the face because the way these kids mosh, there's no fucking style. It's fucking boring. You know, like, to me, I, I'm not going to. Cla- I think it's funny. I crack up. I don't like the targeting. And not yeah. to say that I couldn't tell you that at shows, I'd be like, I'm going to go over and I'm going to roundhouse kick this fucking dickhead who's being rude to this little kid in the face. I did it all the fucking time. Yeah. But at the same time is. I, I would able to be able to fight like half these kids who do this shit, they can't fight. Mm-hmm. They've never been to a fight in life. All they do is kick some kids smaller than them. Yeah. It's a little annoying to see. So when me and Mike kind of came out, we were doing shit that was way more not acrobatic or anything, but like it was more grandiose now. Like yeah. now, if me and Mike were doing it, some asshole would come right behind us and try to elbow us in the face. Okay. And then we would just beat them up. Like it's it was, just, it's not, it's just a different time. And it's weird because I think if kids try to have more of their own style, it look cooler. Yeah. Instead, the emphasis is on cracking someone. And it's like, yeah. well, anyone can hit anyone. That doesn't matter. But can you make some moves? You know, can, what's your moves like, bro? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's interesting to me. Like hardcore dancing is so unique. And so like to it, to an outsider looking at it, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? But it's just interesting that like at a time, like I'm guessing that it went through a progression through the eighties and through the nineties and the two thousands. And it's, it's just super interesting to me that like it caught on to this kind of like uniform looking type like mosh style you know what i mean so here's the deal imagine thinking that this shit is like this is our shit and years later these dopey ass warp tour kids are fucking doing it and then you got a pop punk show somewhere and some little dickheads are doing it there now granted did we mosh hard for texas the reason and get kicked out of the show what the fuck show was it sunday Day real estate the trocadero we got uh, grabbed up by bouncers for moshing hard for Sunday day real estate. We definitely did that, but like you'd see kids that wouldn't get into a mad ball pit, punching and kicking people, the pop punk, yeah. the warp tour and all of those subculture crossover points kind of stole what we did mm-hmm. and put it into these fucking metal core places, which is not even metal core. It's pop music. It's yeah. pop metal, not pop punk. It's pop music. Yeah. It's pop metal. It's pop, whatever. It's not fucking punk. It's not fucking core. It's no core. And it. it was mass marketed at the mall and the young kids. Mm-hmm. When I started seeing that, I was kind of like, <laughs> like I lost some of my love for it. But then I realized like we started it, we made it cool and we're going to keep it, you know? Yeah. But uh, I've, uh, you're also talking to the guy who he and his friends got fucking flown out to fucking 
uh, mosh in an AFI video. So if I was trying to keep it underground, I wouldn't have moshed in the AFI video. <laughs> so why am I saying that? Right. I think, I think you've done enough that you can mosh in an AFI video, dude. <laughs> Um, All that. I mean, those are those are our homeboys, and that's what they ask for. Yeah, hey, baby dude. wants, baby gets, right? So uh, I'm going to wrap it up here pretty soon. Um, man, I just uh, – I hit you with pretty much every question that I had for you right now. Um, the only other thing really that uh, I wanted to – and you can just touch on us if you want, but, um, you know, I know that you work with Fast Break. Um, do you guys, what's on the docket for Fast Break? What's coming up? What bands do you have your eyes on? That kind, of, that um, sort of thing. For me, uh, I, 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 I know that we have some stuff that I don't know if I'm really allowed to say. Okay. Uh, we got a reissue of a band that has put never, that never saw. It's like a reissue of their LP with a demo that people can't get. It's like a 20 year issue. We're working on um, Richie Crutch might end up doing an imprint where he takes bands and puts them on a label because fast break is kind of cornered oh they're this kind of thing and richie wants to do different stuff so i know that we got some fast break stuff coming up i know richie wants to start doing things i'm hoping that we get another release at mh um it'll Which, be interesting that, that I, album was awesome here here's a band that you just see at a show and you're like i know what they're i know what their prerequisites are i know the bands that they uh, that influenced them therefore I wanted to be there and make sure that they didn't get released on some dopey ass shit yeah. or they just end up being like they, they had like people release their demo in Europe mm-hmm. like people in Europe were on to them before they really started playing and I wanted to have a part in trying to make sure this band can grow I mean it's no brainer they played fucking Keystone Jam they played the first Pennsylvania Hardcore show back they're definitely going to be on this is hardcore. MH is like one of my favorite bands right now. Mm-hmm. But um, oh, dude, you put me on to them from having them on your show. And it's the most unique fucking. I love it. I mean, I don't have enough good things to say about it. It's, it was such a breath of fresh air here in MH chaos that it's it's hard. It claps. It's, you know, the the drummer is off the chain. Good. Um, he has a band, a side project that sounds like some tech metal band like Worm. Everybody real. in that band is actually, they kind of downplay. They kind of play down to be, in, <laughs> to be in the band. They're all insane musicians. Okay. And they do this shit because they love this style. And I think to talk to your uniqueness, really, they took, um, they took elements of the early 90s in the late nineties fucking shit that Sack Dorn and the bulldoze guys did. And they added modern tempos and, and time changes. Mm-hmm. And they, so they basically took something that was already established and kind of remixed it in a way that feels so fresh, you know, it, it is. I said to him, and this isn't like, this isn't an exact comparison, but I said to him, I get, it's like you put bury your dead and district nine in a blender. And this like, weird thing came out on the other side like it has this like the mh doesn't sound like either of those bands but i hear these like bouncy elements groovy elements and the vocalist just sounds like district nine to me i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of the queen's element as well in that in that rhythm section Mm -hmm. and in his and dave's delivery it's really fresh man and i think 
if more kids didn't try to emulate things, emulate things, but add to it as opposed to carbon copy it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what they did. And it's like, that's, that's why I think it hit me so hard. I mean, there's a lot of bands out right now. Um, and a lot of bands that had put out music from like what they did during COVID and stuff. Uh, but nothing, nothing quite shined like MH chaos to me. So, you know, definitely thanks for putting me onto them. Cause they're really good. Um, then the other question I had for you, I mean, this is optional, but do you have any, uh, this is hardcore news that you want to drop or that you can drop? I would just tell anybody who wants to understand what's happened to this hardcore is go to episode 72 of This Is Hardcore Podcast. Mm-hmm. Currently, I'm in the stages of billing out this fucking lineup. So that way I can make it an ass whooper. That's all I can yeah. say because day-to-day things change. What happens in the booking stage of this hardcore is I talk to bands. Hey, are you available? Yeah, I might be able. We're still trying to see what's up with this tour. There are some bands that we might not be able to have because they're in Europe. Other bands I might not be able to because of tour restrictions and, and um, the radius clauses. Mm-hmm. So I've got to kind of go out with my first, second, and third round drafts and ask and hopefully get some back, send out some money. And then I got to kind of figure out what kind of bands that I know. Uh, I know 25, um, 25 years is a big deal. Obviously, this is 25 years of me booking shows. Mm-hmm. It's also 25 years of strength for a reason. So mm-hmm. strength is definitely a part of the fest this year. MH Chaos is a part of this fest this year. There's obviously some givens that, you know, anyone can just say, oh, yeah, it's pretty likely this band's going to play. Yeah. But um, also with a lot of people traveling for the first time, like legitimately in the country, there's going to be some. I've heard I've heard back from Hey Man, family hasn't gone on a real vacation in three years. We really got to do the summer next year, though. Yeah. And because of this hardcore being something that people say it happens every year, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you what. I love that people are excited for this hardcore in 2022. You better keep that motherfucking energy up for 2022. Yeah. Cause I'm not going to stop, but I'm also getting a little tired of people acting like we're a bust. Like, Oh, well, no matter what, they're going to do it. Just like every hardcore show, just like every hardcore fucking band. If you do not support these motherfucking things, mm-hmm. that Keystone hardcore jam we do is fucking awesome. It was great last year. It was great the year before the pandemic. And I'll tell you what, we're doing one in Halloween, October 29th. Mm-hmm. The shit that we put on, whether it's the Keystone Harker Jam from within Records Showcase is this Saturday as a matinee at the church. You want to see more shit like that? You got to come and fucking support. Bob Wilson does a show every year. It's called the Philly Hardcore uh, Barbecue. If you're there before the first band, it's $2. If you're there after it's 10 bucks, 15 bands, it's all for fun. It's like a big local show. But like Jesus Peace, Year of the Life, everyone's played it. If they don't get, if they don't get support, they're not going to fucking do it. Everything in hardcore is related to who fucking shows up and who supports. So if you're sitting at home on the internet saying, I wish I would have, then fuck you. You should have went. If this shit's important to you, don't say, I'll do it next year. Go to what the year it's fucking happening, because that way you can guarantee you put a little effort in so it would happen the following year. I'm going to wrap it up there, dude, because that that puts a nice little cap on it. Go to This Is Hardcore. Um, you know, it is without a doubt... Uh, the biggest fest in Pennsylvania. And I mean, on the East coast, um, Joe hardcore, always holding it down for Pennsylvania hardcore. And, and man, we really do appreciate you. Um, what, where can people find you? Where can people find the, this is hardcore information. Easiest is this is hardcore fest.com. Social media will be, this is hardcore on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
You can find me at the Joe Hardcore Instagram. I'm on Facebook. If you write to me, you've got you might as well just write me a fucking letter by a horse and carriage because I almost never look at Facebook messages. So I would say Instagram, the Joe Hardcore is probably the quickest way to get a hold of me. Or I have a really simple email, Joe at This Is Hardcore Fest, if you want to get your band on, or just Joe Hardcore Gmail. And you can listen to me every Friday because I drop a podcast, tihcpodcast.com. And me, Richie, the godfather of Pennsylvania Hardcore, OG Jeff Gavin from the Broadsheet Breakdown, we have Rule of Three. And we're going to be recording the Rule of Three sometime soon. So if you want to hear more shit like this, I've got fucking... 70 something episodes and i release a new episode every week there it is so support the band go to the shows go to this is hardcore support the label do all of this joe hardcore you've got your hands in everything in hardcore man you are hard you you are hard at work dude and uh like i said we we definitely appreciate everything you've done for the scene um thanks for coming on and being a part of the show today i really appreciate it Hey man, I, I love that you are able to do this. And um, I'm I appreciative that you asked me to be a part of it, Matt. And I just hope that you keep going. Hope that you keep growing what you've been doing and keep kind of pushing things out and, and zero in on stuff that you enjoy because people like you doing little podcasts, if everyone took a little bit of time to listen to these things, you're going to hit a morsel of something that I might not have thought to listen to. And that's why everyone's voice kind of echoing and, and supporting these things. You know, like on shit's my boy. I haven't had him on my show, yeah. <laughs> you know, like these every every person like yourself who's out here doing these podcasts and you're echoing and you're showing people your help, your help. So in seeds, man. And that's super important. Hey, dude, you know, I mean, I, I just love hardcore. <laughs> I've been doing same this deal. For, I say the same thing I mean? when someone yeah. says it to me, I go, man, I love hardcore. But the same thing is don't think that you don't have a place. Don't think that you're not making an impact. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge it that you don't have to have the biggest name in the game to do anything, doing something has value. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have to understand that anyone who does something, it has value. Mm-hmm. You know, I think which strips hardcore of value is when you're doing it with the idea of, well, I'm going to eventually get to the point where my band's so big, we don't ever have to play shows. Then it's not value. Now you're just yeah. using it as a stepping stool, but your podcast reaches people this stuff infects people and helps people go to the next level. And so therefore I appreciate your efforts. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, man. Um, you know, we're not going anywhere We're uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing the organic thing 30 episodes in I've got, uh, three on deck right now. I've got, I got to record one tomorrow night, Wednesday night, and then next Monday night. And I think I probably have the rest of the week booked there too. So there's no shortage I love it. of it. I love it. Yeah. No, Matt, shortage don't fucking it, stop. Man.